0: There's a lesson in business where you could have all the skills, all the knowledge, all the information, everything that you need, or even the resources and the money, to build something. But if you're personally not that person, then what will happen is your business will always drop mm-hmm. because you're not at that level, or you you're not that person with the right characteristics, with the right amount of wisdom, the amount of life experience to be able to run that company how it needs to be run.
1: Welcome to another episode of the I Love Monday podcast. Today we have multi-award winning entrepreneur and CEO of Shakur Investments, Abdul Shakur. Welcome.
0: Thank you, it's been a pleasure. Uh, the journey from Birmingham has been nice. It's all those a little bit better.
1: Uh, thank you for coming all the way down for us. Appreciate it. Um, Shakur Investments, let's start from there. What is it? Just a brief overview.
0: So Shikor Investment Group is uh, an alternative investment firm. So people invest into projects. We spread the risk across the supply chain. So we, for example, we invest into property care and imagine and acquisitions of buying other property businesses. And, and we don't charge any fees to our investors. We basically own the supply chain. So an investor invest into another developer, for example, because they're working with us, uh, the investments are more secure we on the supply chain, we raise capital for the developers, we support the infrastructure of those developers so they can grow but at the same time giving investors their returns
1: okay, so where did your personal journey start from
0: so so my personal journey was um, I, I grew up in in Birmingham in, in a local community and you know my father was a religious scholar, I was prematurely born, so for me it was this we didn't grow up with money. Our wealth wasn't something that we discussed, or was it? It wasn't a conversation that we had, and nor was it ever discussed, even as an adult. So for us, it's like we worked hard for everything I had, and I realized very quickly that my dad gave me the ability to do public speaking from a very young age, and that helped me propel and be able to communicate myself. That was just a starting point. But in school, I was this natural kid who was just buying and selling stuff, selling SIM cards, and nobody knew they were free. watching damaged phones, fixing them up, selling them off. And I realized I wanted to make a difference because I was like, I've got ambition, I've got goals, uh, but I, there wasn't any other role models around at the time. You know, this is 13 years ago when entrepreneurship, investing, wasn't a popular conversation. Social media didn't go down that route of everything was positive. Social media was just social media at the time. Yeah. And so yeah, I started my first business at 16, um, did different businesses over the over the last few years. and. And 13 years on, I'm, you know, touch what I'm so self-employed and still running my businesses.
1: What kind of ambitions and goals did you have when you were 13, 14?
0: So I was, at 16 years old, I had a little tissue paper. and, And that tissue paper, I drew a house on, a big building on it. And in that building was a lift down the middle. And in that building, we had one of every single service. And that's what I wanted to build. And that was the vision that I had. I did not know how I was going to get there. I didn't know where I was going to go. I just knew that I wanted to create change for young people who who had ambition, who didn't come from money, who didn't have that level of support. So my ultimate thing started off with a sense of purpose rather than it being about money or business. Yes, we want to make money. That's natural as a business owner. But the key aspect was I wanted to make a difference. So I spent a lot of time in charity volunteering, doing all these other things. But I realized very quickly that actually we cannot create change from a from a bottom-up like change does not happen from from protesting from doing all that stuff change can only happen from a top-down perspective from getting yourself into a position of strength getting yourself around wealth around wealthy people around this idea of of resources of information knowledge if you can get yourself into that position only then can you truly sort of give back in that value Uh, It took me like a few years to realize that but I I knew that I had to focus on what I was trying to build and build that first
1: What kind of change are you talking about?
0: I'm talking a change where everyone Everyone has equal opportunities in the sense that everything is accessible for them investments are accessible wealth is accessible uh, Opportunities are accessible people start to have the same level of resources regardless of how wealthy you are how how much you know, how much money you have, or where you grow up, or what your skin color is. It's the idea that we all, are, we all should have access to the same level of information and knowledge. Like I sit with, with in schools and colleges, and I sit with certain clients, especially from diverse backgrounds, that still not, don't have access to their education about investing, whilst their whilst other colleagues at the workplace have already sorted their lives out from that perspective.
1: What is it inside you
0: that creates this drive? To create the impact. Um, it's a tough, it's a tough, tough question to answer because I'm, I've always been driven by purpose because that's all I've seen. You know, yeah. my father, being a local scholar, was like it was that kind of like all we all we saw was giving. There was nothing but that. But because I was prematurely born, because I didn't have the full physical capabilities of a, of of someone who could try to have a cricket career, which I tried to do, but I wasn't able to do it. And I had injuries and things like that. So for me, it was because I can't have that, there needs to be another way of doing things. And I just knew from a very young age that I wasn't just about university. It wasn't just about the typical education. I value those education units today. And I feel like everyone should do them. I'm not against education in any way, shape or form. However, I feel like my journey was just made naturally led on to that. It just naturally fell through. I didn't design my journey i didn't have a perfect plan in place i didn't have any other i just let whatever i was doing every single day to get up to work every day to do that day in day out for years and years and wherever that journey leads i'm just going to trust that journey and just make those decisions with intuition with that okay that feeling that somehow we're just going to be looked after and everything's going to be okay
1: what was your first business at 16?
0: So my first business was a marketing agency. and okay. uh, So we used to do the marketing for small businesses. Uh, but we had an interesting twist on it. So we used to uh, take young people who were uh, unemployed from the job centre and places like that, and we used to train them up to become freelancers because marketing wasn't a career you could have at a young age back then. It was a problem. They couldn't have, you, couldn't have a, you had to do a degree. You had to be working for a few years before you, be, you know, before you make money or before you get into the industry. So what I created was an easier, accessible route where they would work with us. We would pay them for the work that we do, help them become freelancers. The government would then fund us from a training point of view. So we would get funding from, as a social enterprise, as, from others, a like big lottery, places like that. And then naturally we would, we would chain them up to earn money. Once they've got that portfolio and that freelance stuff, we then go to the more established agencies and then offer a recruitment service. So we had like three income streams within that one business. Um, and that's when I made the first mistake. I, I made the first mistake in my business of not being out of the business i was so much involved so i had an operation when i was 18 19 which means that i had to sell part of the business close the other half and that was a wake-up call that you can't just rely on just you as a person
1: what was the reason you had to sell part of it
0: um so a part of it was profitable profit it wasn't so the the order book or the marketing clients and the retainer fees that we had were profitable and the relationships and the contracts we had were profitable but the social enterprise or the social impact arm wasn't that profitable So it was like, okay, it's an arm, but when we tried selling the business, people weren't really interested in making a difference. They were more interested in in what was valuable to them.
1: Yeah, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. So when you realize you made that mistake, looking back at it, what would you have done differently? And how soon would have you started working on the business?
0: I would have outsourced everything from day one. And this is my approach today. It's about being a CEO, and, and most people take this slightly offensively sometimes when I say this, but you're, it's above your pay grade. As a director, if you think about if you compare yourself to a corporate executive right, a director, they're not doing every single thing. They're doing one job. They focus on, on building and growing the organization. As an entrepreneur, as a business owner, my mentality is very similar. It's how do we step out of the day-to-day and stop doing the the mundane tasks that we spend so much hours doing. A good example is just basic diary management, basic prospecting, basic sending messages out, organizing diaries. Like just, just a basic admin alone takes 20 hours a week.
1: You don't need to do that.
0: Why are we doing this? So for me, that's, I see that as I can better use our time to make an impact. So we need to have a CEO mindset from day one and I wish I had that mindset. Uh, second thing was the corporate mentality. I had to get mentors in place uh, who were from corporate backgrounds. And what they did was they explained to me, actually, you need to have a corporate mentality. As entrepreneurial as we are, as disruptive as the world is, as long as we're moving towards this anti-corporate sort of environment, but the only way you scale a business is, okay, have entrepreneurial thinking, but build a corporate entity, build a corporate empire. Have systems, have structures, have things in place that corporate companies do, just deliberate in an
1: entrepreneurial way it's true because i've never worked in a corporate background Mm. and whenever we would hear the words kpis and all these buzzwords that are used on the corporate world we think well we don't need to use that because that's for them but then Mm. after a while as you're trying to scale up you're like no we actually do need the kpis we need to know how many phone calls they're making and how many sales they're making where it's where the in the pipeline where it's mm. falling apart or in the funnel where it's falling apart. We need to know this. Mm. And this is by creating that corporate identity, but still have that disruptive mindset in terms of I'm still gonna make a change and I'm still gonna do it differently, but these are how gonna this is how I'm gonna measure it.
0: Mm. Absolutely and there's no such thing as something original. Like people we have this idea that oh we're entrepreneurs, we come up with original ideas. You know, even things like Disney, you know, they, they said it themselves. It, nothing is original, there's no such thing as original. Ideas are formed up of, of, of things that, of imagination, but also, you know, ideas come from a mixture of different places. You're pooling different ideas and different inspirations or different pieces of creativity from different places to bring it together to create one thing. So you're still, nothing is truly original. Concepts are there. What we've done is we've just brought in different things to bring them together to make this somewhat of an original idea.
1: Going back to the CEO mindset, how do you decide now that I can do this task and this I'm gonna outsource or delegate?
0: I'm driven by the idea of, you can design your life, right? And you can design your business how you want it to be designed. So with me, it's like, if I can focus on the thing that I love and do and enjoy every day, that's what I'm gonna focus on. That's my strength. Everything outside of that, I shouldn't be worrying about. So what I mean by that is I love sitting in front of investors. I love I love sitting in appointments, sitting in meetings all day. So if my diary is full of appointments, brilliant. Because I can go in and can close deals, I can do that, I enjoy that bit of it. Yes, I have a salesperson and a sales team. However, I still love that people's side of it, that people's side of it. So it. That's what gives me the energy to get up and do what I do because I get energy from people. and inspired by people's stories. I love seeing the impact on people's faces. Like That's the bit that I enjoy. So I'm gonna focus on doing that every day. Everything else, I don't wanna to touch.
1: And that's what you decide, okay, this is the team I need. Absolutely.
0: Even to the stage where, although I used to have a marketing agency, I still hired a marketing director. Why? Because the whole idea is that you need to start making those decisions so you can free up space mentally to not burn out as an entrepreneur, not burn out as a business owner, but focus on the things that are going to grow the business. Like, the regulate, even my like FCA regulation, things like that. Like I'm focusing on all these other things and I need the mental space and the energy to do that. So if I'm so focused on doing all this other stuff, where am I going to find the time to actually grow? Yeah. Where am I going to find the time for strategy? Where am I going to find the time to actually... To have conversations that actually are the next five, ten years of my business.
1: So you're CEO of the marketing agency, but you hired a marketing director.
0: No, even now, I'm talking about now in, in the investment group. Okay. So in Shakur Investment Group, I, although I know marketing, although I understand it and I can execute it really well, I choose not to do it. I choose not to make those decisions. I'd rather hire someone who's experienced. Richard Branson kind of had that analogy of hiring people who are better than you. Yeah. So what I did was I found someone who had that experience of working with some of the biggest brands in the world, worked in that professional corporate environment and said, I need a corporate brand. Build it like that. What do I need to do? And the first thing I did was a rebrand. Because that's what I needed. And But I didn't make that decision. I didn't take the lead on that project. Every time I come up with a concept, for me, it's about... You know, we're trying, to, we're trying to go into the space of education right now and do a lot more within you know, creating a curriculum around enterprise and entrepreneurship. However, what we, what, rather than me having to think about how I'm going to do this, just bring in someone who's got the expertise.
1: So do you have a director of Shakur as well?
0: So, uh, so I don't have a, a day-to-day managing director. That's, yeah. That will always be me. Okay. But we have department needs so for example we have someone who's director of operations who thinks about operationally how do we make ourselves more efficient because it's not just one business we've got eight companies under the group yeah. all of these eight companies have their own directors so my main focus is how do I support these guys to build their businesses yeah. and underneath them they have their own operational teams and they have their own systems in place that work for them and my idea is now I've gotten less of this person that is part of the day-to-day but more about How do I build this group together? It's like, rather than having one boat, how do I build this whole island of marinas? And how do I take all these shit to grow out and take over things at the same time? Rather than having one business, one focus. And and people might say that you need to have one focus. And And we have this idea of doing one thing But there's so many different things that are complementary that can be integrated into your uh, your idea or your business. By integrating your supply chain, you can ultimately you can ultimately make more money across the board. Like how many other services can you add to your current service that will then ultimately make you more money in the long run? And that's what we're there to do.
1: Which is what you're doing right now, isn't it? Because you're buying Are you buying
0: businesses? Buying businesses, yes.
1: So How are you choosing the right businesses to buy for your supply chain?
0: So for me, I look at a business that's not too not too big. I don't look at businesses that are above the million mark. I look at businesses between the hundred to five hundred thousand pound mark, and I make a decision based on two things. Do I? My first decision is always: is the director or the person do they share the same values as me?
1: What are your values?
0: values around being more about the people in the business caring more about the quality of service giving back the charitable aspect the the mindset around and not being not having too much of an ego that they've already made it and they carry themselves in that manner people who are who understand that we're constantly learning we're constantly growing and collaboration is an important part of it but more importantly we're appreciative. Like Shakur, the name of our company, my second name comes from the idea of being grateful. Yeah. And so that's the core value of our business. That's the core value that's embodied across everything. And that's what I look for. I look for people who are grateful for the world, grateful to be alive, grateful to, to be in business, but grateful for the people around them. And that's my core value that I start everything with. Because if we're not focused on the customer, the client, the consumer, then how are we meant to truly build something big enough? Because if you focus just on money, if you focus just on building something that just churns out money, eventually that business will, won't survive. But if you build something that's designed for people, then it will live beyond you. Why is that? Because it's people that make the business work, not you. It's always been people. There are companies that exist generations on. We've seen those brands. They have succession plans in place. Yeah. Those are because actually they, they focus on people. That person that became an executive, then becomes a director, then becomes, uh, you know, next to the CEO, eventually becomes CEO.
1: So how do you choose the right people?
0: The first thing I look at is values. I, I always start there, and I'm going to keep banging on about this throughout this conversation, is I do business with people who, are, who share the same mindset. But more importantly, they buy into the vision. I'm very clear from the outset, this is what I'm building. This is the vision, this is the direction. It's very clear, picture perfect. And I feel like a lot of people are trying to move in different places because they're trying to make money. But they don't have this 10, 20-year vision. And because they don't have this 10, 20-year vision, they can't build uh, an ecosystem, a process, a, a, an, uh, you know, an environment where they can achieve that. So because I have a very clear picture of where I want to go, I'm like, I can build a team and I can find the right values of people that can, that will keep that family together, regardless of what I'm doing or where I am.
1: So what kind of challenges have you had to put the right people in?
0: Um, expectations is one. I think managing expectations from, your side from, side? from both sides. It's managing my expectation of staff members and managing the expectation of, of, of their expectations of how much support they might get or how much, or how quick we're growing, how we'll be able to manage it. Like there are expectations on both sides that you have to address. Uh, and in my early times, I think, I'm looking back at my own faults. So I think the key thing was I wasn't communicating enough because I had so much going on in my head I wasn't communicating across the board. So now what I started to do was I, every Monday I, I write an email. And that email says, here's what I'm up to this week. Here are my thoughts this week. Here's what, I'm, here's what I, I target up this week.
1: Who'd you send that to?
0: I send that to the whole, group, team. The whole team, the whole group, the whole company, right? This is a, a, a thing that goes up to everyone, okay. especially the directors mainly to begin with. And this idea of this is to keep people informed as to what's going through my mind, what opportunities are coming up. So if I'm buying a business that's going to have an impact on the group, I need to then inform them that I'm actually thinking about this in the first place. Why? Because I'm only, only going to grow if they grow. If one entity within that group doesn't grow, there's something going wrong somewhere. Because the whole idea is that that whole supply chain feeds each other. Yeah. That whole idea of they all need to be supporting each other. And if one isn't growing to the stage where I need it to grow, or it's not growing at the pace, or they're not all building up together, then the one thing I need to do is, is reach below and think, okay, how can I build that business back up? So I, then that's how I manage my time. So I will then be like, okay, I need to step out of that bit, step out of that bit, and focus on this business more so. So I can then allocate my time towards the different entities and different companies.
1: So when you send that email out, I find it really interesting. Um, When you send that email out to your team, what kind of feedback do you get or do you not get feedback?
0: So um, one of the the key things that came out from one another was that it was super interesting. The feedback that I got was that, okay, that was a really good email. Let's keep this up. Let's keep this consistent. So now when I went into meetings with the directors or with the team, they felt like they had more responsibility now, that they had to feed something back to me. So when I started communicating more, everyone else started communicating more. That meant I could appoint someone to go around to all the companies and they can give me updates. They can give me what. So when I, you know, leaders, we follow by example, right? So if I lead by example and say, okay, I'm going to start doing this and I make the intention to do more of this, everyone else will naturally start to follow.
1: So when you initially sent the first email out to everyone, was there like really positive feedback and everyone started to follow
0: what you were doing? Yeah, everyone started to communicate and give updates on a weekly basis. So I would get an update from every director more so. Normally I would just, you know, normally before it was just a very casual thing. I would walk in and I would like, how you doing? How you feeling? And, and I would have a conversation with them there. And then. it wasn't just—it wasn't a process. It wasn't a thing that I took out time for. It was just a conversation that I was having with them as and when they had time in the diary.
1: But then that could also mean nothing happens after that. Yes, yeah, so there wasn't
0: up. a follow-up. There wasn't yeah. a stroke, There wasn't accountability. There wasn't things like that in place. So I had to—I can now go in and say, okay. So what can I do to help you this week? Now I can have that conversation, but because they've given me an update. I already recognize before going into that meeting what that conversation is about. Yeah. So it helps me prepare a little bit better as a leader. So I can go into that meeting and be like, okay, even before I go into that meeting, I've already prepped something. I've already prepped an introduction or I've already thought about a concept. Or I've already had a conversation with someone else about that meeting. So it impacts them. So I can, we can all grow quicker each and every week. Yeah. And a lot of people are are, are focused on the bigger goals and the big vision is brilliant. It's important to have that monthly target, that yearly target, the the five-year plan, that 10-year plan. For me, it's activity. I focus on what activity is, is important this week and how can I improve that activity. Do I need to do more of that activity? Do I need to do less? Where do I need to focus the activity levels? That's how I manage my time at the moment.
1: How big is your team?
0: So we've got 25 staff across the group. So we've got eight companies, twenty-five staff across the group, and we're we're growing. So every three months, I might do another acquisition. Every, uh, I might make another investment into another business. Sometimes it's not an acquisition, sometimes an investment into another company, um, and for an equity share, and I'll integrate them in the group. So every three months, we're we're growing. So we'll uh, next twelve months probably talking between fifty to seventy-five, probably more.
1: Okay. So the businesses you're buying, you've mentioned supply chain a few times, could you just explain the, so you obviously you've got Shakur Investments on top, and then what was that initially? And then what are the initially, other eight that businesses?
0: Was, initially that was just an investor relations arm. So that was me providing consultancy and support to developers, to other uh, care providers, to people and raising capital. That's what I was doing. That was my pure service, it was a consultancy piece. I was there to advise how people raise capital, do all of that stuff. That then led on to, okay, if I'm an advisor and I'm raising capital, they're now appointing service providers, contractors, you know, they've got a whole procurement process, right? So say if I raise capital for your project, you then like, you need a construction company, you need all these service providers, right? hmm, I don't want to become a developer. But how can I be involved in development projects and take my piece of the pie and make more money and be profitable overall without having to do the development projects? This way, I can work with the 150 developers that we work with and provide them all services. And equally, I don't care about wealth, like, how much money do you need to be comfortable mm-hmm. like, Of you, you get to 10 grand a month, you're like, okay, cool, that's done. Like, you're not gonna, you very few people, I feel like, spend more than that. Even if you go on a holiday every, every month, you're still not going to spend all that amount, right? Yeah. So for me, it's like, I got to that amount, and I'm like, okay, how do I then focus on, on, on building something more? It's not about me, it's about the entity now. So I can then provide a service to them, help them grow a business, help them grow, their sort of go from two projects to 10 projects a year by raising capital for them. And then I profit from the cash flow. So rather than developers who run out of money very quickly, uh, because their money's tied into projects, I don't need to be a developer, but equally my businesses all grow as a result of working in the industry. Because all my businesses benefit from all this cash flow. If we imagine this right now, you're a developer. How many services do you need? From structural engineers to architect services to mortgage brokers to everything, right? So imagine you you came to me and you had every single service.
1: Yeah. Makes it easier.
0: In one place. That's what we're trying to achieve. We're at number eight. We'll probably get to wherever, every small little thing from, you know, from cleaning to assessments to every little thing will eventually be in the group. Yeah. So what that does is for investors that are investing in developers, it protects them because they know there's one supply chain, there's a smooth conveyor belt. It protects their investment. It makes sure that there's a bit of reliability on the sense of they're all communicated, they've all worked with each other. How many times have have you seen people clash heads because the architect doesn't like the construction company and the construction company doesn't like the architect and then they're constantly complaining about each other.
1: Whereas you have created a supply chain where the people in the businesses have the same values so that would hopefully reduce that, reduce them clashes. And everyone works together for the same goal.
0: And also, if I imagine I become a developer tomorrow, like my goal is to set up a fund and that fund will invest as as a JV partner into development projects. And imagine, like, I set this fund, right? Now imagine how much more whoever backs this fund, whoever invests into this fund in the future, imagine that now that when they make that investment, how much more cheaper will it be for me to just run it across this budget? How much more cost-effective? How much it'll benefit the whole, the, everyone involved in the process yeah. and give more returns, give more security? And that's what it's about. And then we can we can pick that same model up in every region and move it across the UK. So wherever we are, or pick it up in different countries, we go into a country, we start buying the supply chain. Once we understood and we've got a presence on the supply chain, we can then go global. Some the vision for me isn't just to, to build a fund and to deliver that fund. It's also to how do we build a global company? How do we build something like Blackstone? Blackstone is one of the biggest investment companies in the world. How do we build something like that? But how do we make it accessible to people? How do we make the process more secure, more easier, more transparent?
1: How are you doing that? Creating the process to make it transparent.
0: The the supply chain is one. Tech will be the other. There naturally will be an element of tech involved. I think that will that that comes. That's not obviously clear at this point. But it's about sitting now with every single investor. It's about keeping that maintaining that relationship. Just like how. Whoever you bank with, right, you have a relationship manager. That relationship manager that you have, they're there to look after you. They're there to communicate with you. They're there to keep you updated. They're there yeah. to inform you of different products. That's what we're going to be. We're going to be that family environment that people can come to and they can get the answers that they need. They can talk to us. They feel like they're, they're not just a service provider. We're actually someone who's part of their life and we're on that journey or wherever their life goes, we're there with them along the way.
1: When you're buying a business, Mm -hmm. how do you ensure that it's profitable in the
0: long run? So I bought in an M&A director. Uh, The M&A director's response, he used to work for one of the big corporate firms. His responsibility is purely on that due diligence process. We have a checklist. That checklist is everything from accounts to clients to, to 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 actual like order book. It goes through the full process. Like to buy a business, people think, oh yeah, it's a simple decision like buying a property, right? But they don't understand that there's a lot that goes into it. So we we've got a process that we have a checklist that we work through, we go through negotiations. I probably sit down with the business owner probably three, four, five, six times before I think, okay, this is something that I want to sign or wanna go ahead with. Then we also look at valuations and how the businesses are valued. Every industry and every business is valued differently. So we have to then look at, is this a true reflection of the value? I do try and keep the the business owner on. So one of the ways we kind of have security for us, if it's the business we're buying, the director stays on. So we can either pay him as a consultant or pay him on the board or, or give him something, an incentive for him to stay and support us during this growth process because if we suddenly buy a business, we go in and one person makes a judgment, one team member, one staff member makes a judgment of us without probably having a discussion, it will spread across wildfire. It will spread across the team. You'll see the whole team goes. And I'm buying businesses not necessarily because of the the actual business itself. I look at what the resources are. And the biggest asset in a business is, is, is team because yeah. that's what's saving me time. That's what's actually that I'm... In, Taking on the business model, yes, it needs profitability. Yes, it needs sustainable, but it needs room for growth. A lot of people go and similarly how they buy distressed assets. A lot of people are trying to buy distressed businesses. I would rather buy profitable businesses. And you know, people who are retiring, people who are uh, for health conditions, or they just they're just tired of doing what they're doing and they want to move into a different industry. Or it's someone that wants to retire in the future, but then I can come in as an equity shareholder in the beginning and then slowly buy them out over a period of time. So wherever structure, every business is different, every client's different, um, that's what I tend to look at. When I, and I think, how easily can I get clients for that business straight away? So the first thing I think is, if I can solve, if I can increase the pipeline, if I can close deals for that business within the first few months, within the two, three months, if I can get a big contract, that's why we hired like one of the ex-directors of the city council, because his, you know, he was advisor on, on procurement and equalities and things like that. So naturally, relationships are up, but also his viewpoint from a, a governance perspective comes in where you will look at the business and think, okay, this is what needs to improve from, from a top-down perspective. And that's how Corpus is
1: When you're hiring these directors, so you've got the M&A director, you've, you've got the procurement director... Mm-hmm. Are they working for you on a consultancy basis? Or?
0: So, yeah, there are mostly on a consultancy basis. So we hire them on, a, on, on like a day rate type of thing. So but they're part of the business. They're contracted. They're, uh, some of them are associate directors. So there was an agreement between me and the business owners or me and them that they will work with us and they will work on a banner. Some of them will have it on. They will promote it for us as well. Some of them we just keep behind the scenes because it's a strategic decision that we make. But a lot of the time I think I don't need someone full time. I need them to put the structure in place yeah. and the support in place so that there are people underneath them that can truly go out there and take their experience and deliver it with high intensity, high energy, whilst with their direction. That's what I need. And their expertise and their knowledge and information, years of experience is valuable. But I know that they're not gonna roll up their sleeves because they're very much more experienced people, right? Yeah. So the idea is if you can take their knowledge, take their experience, take their perspectives, take their contacts, but then give them a team of people to work with. I'm not worried about that person anymore. I'm not worried about that person um, who maybe wanna retire in the future, so I'm leaving a gap in my business. Or I'm not worried about that person taking trade secrets from us because we equally have done that with them. We're sharing equal value. And I tend to hire more experienced people. So people who are in their later years of their careers have left or the industry their corporate job, doing consultancy work here and there, contractor work, but they're looking for something different. They're looking for a family to be a part of, a support structure. And when I share the vision with them and they buy into that vision, that's what I look for. And a lot of the time, these guys are unappreciated. They're unappreciated for the amount of experience that they've built together. A lot of people are trying to hire entrepreneurial staff. I'm trying to do the opposite. I'm trying to hire corporate staff.
1: But I think that's important because you're getting someone who probably has 20, 30 years experience and combined with your expertise and your entrepreneurial spirit mm. you can then build a process and a system which not only benefits you but also benefits the director of the business where they can basically flourish and scale up without, like you said, you having to spend your time.
0: Yeah, and it, looks, it makes it look good on paper. So when we send out our brochures and we send out our marketing material and we showcase to the larger institutions that we work with, and here's our team, you know, how much better does it look when you've got experienced staff members? Because d- the thing for me was, I'm, I'm in a very corporate environment, but I'm a very young, young person in terms of I'm not in my 40s or 50s. I haven't got the corporate experience. However, I need to portray a corporate image. So for me, it's the idea that, okay, how do I add experience and age so people overlook me yeah they're not thinking they're not making a judgment of me they're making a judgment on the business and what we're capable of doing and this is where we have to be very careful with the difference between personal brand and company brand because some people are so heavily personal brand that they can't scale a company brand or they do company brand too much that they can't leverage the credibility of the person of that or that individual that's bringing you know, the actual strength to the business. So you need to have a balance of both. And I feel like, I guess I need, it's important for me to have a personal brand. It's important for me to be out there, to have those relationships. But equally, I want the company to be bigger than me because that's what's going to last.
1: So how do you balance that? So what do you, you use your personal brand for?
0: My personal brand is, okay, it's it's my vision. It's It's the charitable stuff. It's the core values. It's me as a person that's taken my core values as an individual and embody that into the business. So I need to just live and breathe my core values every day. Yeah, And naturally, people will trust me because of the credibility I've had over the last 13 years and the experience of being in business 13 years. And that comes with its own brand and, and energy, right? But equally, at the same time, it's the knowledge. So I can showcase knowledge. I can showcase that. When, when a person, I'm sitting in a sales meeting, for example, I can close the deal because... I understand that I have these skills of sales. I have these skills of knowledge. I can show insight into the business that maybe some of my sales staff can't. So it's, I use that as a base, but then when it comes to actually the team or the delivery, I focus on the company and the growth and the, and the businesses we're buying and the services we're providing and pushing and kind of building the brand of others. So focusing on saying, oh why don't you speak to so and so, why don't you speak to this person, why don't you speak to this person, so I'm like a door opener, Yeah, I'm the guy who opens the door, but the credibility and the client and the value comes from the people and the rest of the team.
1: So what kind of things do you do that pushes your company brand out there?
0: So I started sponsoring award ceremonies. Uh, I, I got into industry events I started to sponsor a lot of those uh, I go out on and, and, and behalf of the company and do a lot of charitable events and go to a lot of things like that I start to get them to promote themselves a little bit more but every time I have a conversation I am not entirely accessible to every person uh, and what I try and do is I say okay I am, if, you, if you want to speak to me about investments have a conversation with me about it right but if you if you want other services and other things. Go to the other people. S- speak to the other person. Yeah. Because I am not the expert in that arena. So when it comes to investor relations, you can talk to me all day long. But when it comes to you know, mortgages, or when it comes to marketing, or when it comes to outsourcing or scalability, have a conversation with these guys.
1: Your investor relations, that's obviously the most important aspect. How accessible is this? Because you have mentioned that it's accessible to invest. How accessible is it to the everyday investor?
0: So people can invest with us um, in our projects. So people can invest with us from as low as £10,000. And that what we do is we basically we utilize that capital to buy businesses and add to that supply chain and invest into some of our property projects and, and some of the care things that we're working on. Right. So we spread the risk across those three areas and we... And, and that's what we're there to do, right? But it's, that's just the beginning. That's just the one part, step of the process. Mm-hmm. Bef- that, when people come in, they say, okay, we would like that. That's a choice we give them. we do not advise them, we don't tell them anything else. We give them a choice. We just put the opportunity in front of them. However, we're now about creating them a roadmap. We build them this roadmap that gets them then, Okay, you've got this investment. Have you set up a SAS pension? Have you bought yourself a property yet? Have you thought about care homes? Have you thought about investing in these? So we will now present other equity-based opportunities to no? Is that to each investor? To each investor. So rather than seeing it as, oh, I'm, I'm just being all greedy about myself and I'm just trying to raise capital for my business and for my opportunities and my projects, equally I'm thinking how do i set this person up so in five to ten years time they can retire by diversifying across everything that's asset backed so they can get equity if they want to go buy a property like let us help you find that property but also let us set up the care provider okay you want to buy into a business that gives you a cash flow okay we've got a business that someone else is buying you should buy into that and stay an equity holder we will negotiate that will support that will be a part of that process uh if you want to buy commercial property okay let's help you buy that commercial property Then let's go give it to a franchise so you've got a strong lease in place. Who's going to do the legal work? Who's going to do the mortgage-broking work? So these other services that we provide as part of the supply chain are also vital in making sure that it's their journey of building wealth. Building wealth doesn't just stop at one investment. You have to diversify the risk across so many different things. And we believe that regardless of where you're from, regardless of who you are, regardless of how much you sort of you know, what stage you're at in your investing journey, you, have, you should have access to the same opportunities that the people who do have the knowledge and do have the wealth have. We just take the same opportunities. For me being surrounded by my experience of being a commercial director, consulting with high net worth individuals, family offices, taking the same strategies as them but scaling it down to the kind of everyday investor, to the person that has invested, maybe a sophisticated investor that now actually wants to build upon what he's already got.
1: So when an investor comes to you, just say they've come with ten thousand yeah. pounds. Do they? Do you give them options? Okay, you can invest in these businesses, or how, how does it work? So
0: when ten thousand pounds, when they come to us, when they invest with us, right? We just focus on putting their money into a, a one or two depending on the amount so if it's a small amount we'll put it into a one project so we'll say okay we're going to put it into an mla project and they don't really have a choice to which project because we have numerous deals and due diligence at that point in time so it's like we've got a pipeline of deals and opportunities that are coming in day and day. so we'll we, we won't let them choose but we'll say it'll go towards this and okay. and we'll give them a report and update once that has happened or once the business is live or once things are running right but then after that we're like Okay, do you want to go buy a property in six months, 12 months, 24 months? What what's the five-year roadmap for you? And at each and every stage, we will put you in touch with the right service provider that eventually will have a loan that will provide a service for you.
1: So then if, for example, someone comes with a 10,000 and after they say, okay, we want to buy a property in a year, how do you ensure that happens or how do you do your best to make sure that happens? So obviously, you can't guarantee it. You can't
0: guarantee it, right? right. So there's, there's, every investment is a risk, and that's important to understand. However, they might have other capital or other, service, or other things that they can have access to, other capital. The £10,000 is more of a, like a, a trust factor mm-hmm. for me. It's, it's kind of like dip your toe in the pond with us yeah. and, and learn to build a relationship Let's see how we operate. But then eventually, it's about, okay, you do want to buy property. Every person doesn't want to buy property. Everyone likes the idea of having a business. Everyone likes the idea of, of you know, dabbling their hands into care because they see it's profitable or they might want to do a development project by invest into it as, as a JV partner. Like, everyone wants to do those things. The difference is, are you a hands-on and a hands-off person? So it's about identifying what type of investor are you. If you're a hands-on person, then we're here to provide services and we can help you raise it, right? You help you raise capital. But if you're a hands-off person, we've got projects that you can invest in. I mean, work with those clients, the clients that we've been advising for the last seven years. We, those developers that we work with, we already have a pre-existing relationship with them. And before we even give any developer, like, oh, you know, we help and support that transaction. We make sure that that developer is ready to take on those funds because they've gone through our consultancy piece. Yeah. and they've been onboarded in a, in, a, in a more professional manner.
1: So your investments so far, how much capital have you raised?
0: 10 million, 10 million. in the last sort of two years.
1: So how are you raising that capital?
0: Uh, through numerous ways. So for us, it's, word of mouth is a strong one. So our current investors do refer us. Two years, it's, it's, we've, got a prospect, we've got relationships in place. So for example, uh, if someone is selling a business, and they set, decide to sell that business and then they've got capital that from the sale of the business, we will go and approach them. And we work with the lawyers and we work with people who do that sort of thing. Yeah. Same with everyone else. We've got relationships, but sometimes it's indirectly. Because FCA rules are so strong and you can't really market yourself, you, it's not something that we put out there very blatantly, nor do we say anything. We don't attract people, we don't sell, we don't promote any of it. We just have presence among the community among the business community, among the professional community. We support amazing causes. Naturally, that has an impact on it. Yes, we do reach out to high-end individuals through LinkedIn. That's a prospecting strategy, but we raise that capital but, and we set these appointments week in, week out. But a lot of the time, it's, it's a mixture of everything. You can't, it's like sales, right? You, you can't try one thing and expect to then have it work. Yeah. It, 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 you have to go through all the different mediums and figure out what is the most effective way of raising capital. You know, but equally, it's a process. It's a system. It's like sales is. People are treating sales as a, as a priority in their business. Why don't they treat investor relations as, as a priority?
1: Well, what if a business says, okay, we don't want investor relations or need investor relations?
0: I guess then... For me it's like okay, there's what other services can I provide. If that business now wants to scale, we've got an outsourcing business called Officium. Officium is designed to go in, it's a scrum master by background and we've got an office in in the Philippines. We can literally go into a business, process map it, save the business on the time, they'll help you build a team that's in a different country at probably a cheaper rate, but then have a UK touch to it. So use GDPR compliant you have all the other benefits of it and and you can have those services at some point in time in any person's journey throughout their lives they will need one of our services
1: which service do you think most people will need uh it's perspective,
0: right? You know, you know, if you look at the data, then data might say something else. But if you, look at, if you look at my perspective, I think right now everyone needs help financially. And that could mean business support. That could mean, that could mean you know, putting them in touch with the right you know, opportunities from an investment point of view. Whatever that looks like, it depends on person to person. And what kind of return does an average investor get? So they usually get about 20% return per annum. Per annum? Per annum,
1: so that's really good.
0: And that, what we realized was the three asset classes or the three areas of, of investment is property, care, and acquisitions. Why those three? Property is asset-backed. Care is, is lucrative from a government-backed perspective. Like government pays for children's care providers and things like that. And then you've got to look at M&A. You're buying profitable businesses that are already revenue generating.
1: You said before um, you, you buy profitable businesses rather than distressed. What's yeah. the reason behind it?
0: Distressed businesses, those turnaround businesses require effort. They also have a lot of issues. And sometimes resolving those issues is a big risk, in my opinion. I'd rather buy something that's already working. Yes, you might be able to buy it cheaper. But then they'll have loads of issues that then you'll have to turn it around and deal with. Yeah. How quick you can turn it around is a whole other question within itself. That requires... You know that's a that's a, a risk that you're if you're willing to take that risk then go for it. However, they're usually distressed for a reason. Yeah. Sometimes it's the people. That's one thing. Second time it could be it could be it could be a simple pipeline sales problem. It could be a cash flow problem. It could be any of those issues, right? So, if you there's no guarantee that you will resolve that issue in the time frame that you want to resolve it in.
1: Have you? I just distressed distressed uh, businesses before i
0: haven't bought anything distressed now i i probably would st- i've been offered one recently and i looked at it and i thought there's an opportunity here but something just screams run like it, it, i follow my intuition when it comes to a lot of decision making yes i have to think about everything that's on paper and the logic and, and the due diligence that my team goes through that's important to me but at some point in time, you just got to trust that actually you know what you're doing in this scenario. You've built businesses, you, you, you trust that experience and that instinct or that intuition kicks in for me. And it says to me, I need to walk away from this.
1: The problem I would see with distressed businesses is that it's not like property where property. If it's a rundown, one of the worst properties on the street, it's fine. You know exactly how quickly you need to turn it yeah. around, even if you've got everything out. Distressed businesses, isn't
0: like that? And you, it depends. So some of the things could mean that actually if you buy a distressed business, it might not have any assets. That's the first thing. If it has an asset, that's a bonus. Most people will sell the assets and, and get it profitable again. The big thing is the contracts. It's the order book. That's how much money can that business make if you choose to buy it. Because you're not just paying the purchase price now. Mm. You're also paying the investment price in terms of what, how much money needs to go into this business. Yeah. And if you've got that type of cash lying around to invest that additional funds, it's, it's like anything. You want, you want to keep your hair on your head. You don't want to lose your hair. You don't want gray hair. You don't want to, you don't want to stress yourself out. I'm a, I'm a guy that believes in that. I prefer less headache, which is why I didn't become a developer. Because I don't want the headache of having to be on site every day and having to deal with a pipe burst or things like that. And it's the same way I treat the investment opportunities I look at. How do I, if I can reduce the headache that I have to deal with on a day-to-day basis, then I'm in a good position.
1: What kind of challenges have you faced when you're buying businesses?
0: Um, <laughs> the obvious one is, is, is the industry as a whole. So there'll be brokers out there that will say, your business is worth this much and we can sell it for this much. But when you look under the hood, the business isn't worth that much at all second thing is they don't every uh, the second issue is they don't have everything documented you gotta realize we're buying traditional businesses and a lot of the time they don't have IT systems in place they don't have data they don't have they don't have things in place which you can track and measure and actually you know yes you can look at the bank statements and yes you can look at the what they say they have and you can take kind of their word for it but and you know you are going to get cases where they might have lied about one or two things and you can't control mm-hmm.
1: that how, do you, how have you overcome them?
0: Um, I trust my team to make a decision I don't get involved in the decision at that point in time so no, I trust I, like, I step out and I let my m director tell me yes or no
1: so have you ever had a moment where you've wanted to purchase a business and your M&A director said
0: no? I trust yeah there, there probably has been one or two moments where I've thought about that but I trust his decision which is why I got them in their first place and they're there to protect me. Okay. So um, I will always think okay if that's if if that's his expertise, that's his area, I need to trust it. Yeah. Because he's obvious if he gives me a logical answer and he says this is why I wouldn't buy it, then I'll be like, okay. Fair enough. Let's fair enough move on. I'll step away from it.
1: What's the next business or next industries you want to get into? <laughs>
0: So we're currently in negotiation with um, two companies in particular. So we're, we're investing into a prop tech business, which will help us in the long run um, to have a public-facing tech platform. Uh, and, and that's going to be an exciting thing that we're going to launch in the next few months. The platform has already been built, which requires support and growth. So we've I've personally invested into that. Yeah. Um, and then we have... Um, then we have a business that provides like bookkeeping accounts type side of things for the contractor market. So yeah. the construction staff members, the healthcare staff members, they need bookkeeping, payroll, things like that. We're going to focus on that. That's another business that we're in negotiation with at the moment. So if that goes through, that goes through. Um, QS, project management and construction are the next three on my list because it's the one thing which I've had to outsource. Uh, previously and while that's a good thing it's means that I have less control so eventually we do want our own construction company of some sort or even a construction management business where they they manage the contract and the subs to do all of that to do all the work but they oversee it but I need again there's I have to prospect for these businesses and these opportunities and oftentimes it's not always about buying the business. Sometimes it's about investing into an exist, existing business, taking a small equity, and then having them keep doing what they're doing but supporting them.
1: And then obviously you're getting the cash flow from that anyway. Yeah,
0: from the cash flow from the business anyway. But equally, um, I'm, I have to go out and p- find people who I feel like, I like this person from an initial conversation. It could happen at a networking event. Like I might go to the Property Developers Network, which I'm a sponsor of in Birmingham, um, go on from Mumbai White Box and I will find someone and I'll be like, I like you, I like your concept, and I like the conversations we've had, I like that you haven't sold to me, but I've gotten to know you as a person. Let let's explore this conversation.
1: When you explore that conversation with them, people are you trying to buy the equity, or is or are you trying to get them to invest, or could be i I'm trying point?
0: to get uh, most of the time when I'm at property events. Um, I'm. I'm like property events for me that I feel like they're pointless, in the sense that unless you're there to provide a service to them, I don't bother networking there. And that's probably why my brand isn't as powerful within the industry as it needs to be because I'm focused on the investors and the people who aren't who aren't at these events because everyone in property knows each other. It's a small world. They're all networking. They're all trying to raise capital. They're all in the same boat. I can pick up consultancy clients. I can pick up deal flow. I can pick up all that stuff. I can provide services to them. Yes, that's brilliant. But I'm not going to find investors there most of the time.
1: Managing a business is a potential another two. And then even over the next year, you can have another three, four, five, ten more yeah. maybe even. What's your day-to-day like?
0: My day-to-day is meetings. I sit at meetings all day long. That, that's the bit that I enjoy the most. If, if someone said to me, you get to do what you're doing now every day for the next 10 years, 20 years, I'd be happy with
1: it. Is that meetings with investors and businesses? It could, could be anything. It anything?
0: Anything. Could, could be a meeting with staff members. could be a meeting with, 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 a, with an investor, with a, with a family office, with a potential client or potential business I'm investing, wherever it is. It's sitting in front of people and being able to say, I can support you. I can help you in this situation, I can provide a service, I can do something of some sort.
1: You mentioned earlier on that when you were, when you were younger, you always wanted to create that impact and create a difference. Do you feel you've achieved that?
0: Um, it's starting now, so my big goal I'm building this wealth but I'm building this empire because I want to give back to young people and opportunities for them to become entrepreneurs right so we' we're, we're in the process of of doing something that will hopefully have an impact on the education in in the industry, the sector the you know the whole education schooling system as, as it exists. I don't think we need to change it in the sense that. Okay, education has its values, right? It has its important things that it does. Like, I feel like university teaches people a lot about disciplines and theory and information and basics, right? It gives people fundamentals about what they need, how to be a professional, how to conduct yourself, how to write, how to do those things. This is why I say to, if I had to look back at my career, I would go back into work and maybe go into a corporate job for a few years rather than go straight into business because that would have taught me certain things which I had to learn the hard way. So for me, it's like, I don't want to change how things are done. I want to improve how things are done.
1: And you've, we've also mentioned about creating equal opportunities for everyone. So the person walking down the street who doesn't feel they can invest or make their money grow, especially in this cost-of-living crisis, can with your business.
0: Absolutely. Whether it's they want to set up their own business up, whether it's whatever it is, they... they then it's about access to information and knowledge. Like, information changes situations. Yeah. And the idea that you're one piece of information away from changing your life. You're one one opportunity away from changing your life. So I believe in three things. If you can provide someone with a level of information, if you can provide them with the resources to be able to do it, and and the resources to make their life easier, or partners, or people, or equipment, whatever it is, and then you provide them the opportunities for them to get clients or opportunities for them to grow, then anyone can succeed. So my whole mission statement around a whole sort of goal is to make those three things as easy as possible.
1: You said that one piece of information can change a person's life. What's one piece that's changed
0: your life? That's not about you. Everything in life, we make it personal. We make it about us, we make decisions based on us, we make decisions, um, you know, we get emotional, we, every, all of these things that we live on a day-to-day life, we make it about us. The less you make it about us, the more you make it about other people, the more fulfilled and happier life you'll ever have. Is
1: that what you've felt as well, has happened to you?
0: I've stopped making it about my success. I've made it about other people's success. I've made it about giving other people the opportunity, the resources, things like that. It's like, you know, I, I coach an under-13s football team uh, at my the charity that I support. They're called BYSA. And the charity I fell in love with because it's involved in my local community and I, I can actually you know go away away from my business and actually step in and help young people and actually speak to them give them like it's football coaching a team yes it's responsibility yes it's time and effort but it's it's about them if I want to create change if I want to make them better at a better place if I want to change myself I can I can ultimately do that by changing other people
1: where do you see Shakur investments in five years time
0: I have a perfect image. Um, so it's, it's very crystal clear for me. We want to be, we want to have our own few f- funds that we want to set up. So for us, it's we want to have a fund for the emergency acquisitions market. We want to have a fund for the care industry. And we want to have one big fund for the, the property development as a JV. So you've got bridging development lenders. We want to be the first ever joint venture fund. So we're actually lending at joint venture finance instead. That's the, the route that we want to go down. Um, I believe my business will be in the next five years uh you know in terms of supply chain would we'll have covered the full service, everything we would have kept in house we would have been at a stage from in terms of like in really branching out to other cities and countries and that's the kind of in the next part of it is where do we go next? Do we go to a developing country and we see the opportunities at any stage do we go to a developed country and build there? And we're starting to build those type of hubs in different capitals or different regions where we know we can add value. What kind of countries are you looking at? Um, we've seen opportunities in Turkey. That that would be one for us because it's uh, it's one country that's kept everyone happy for some, by some reason. But it's also there's there's this future there. There's you know there's there's a lack of infrastructure, but there is also a huge push for infrastructure. So there's still a lot of opportunity there um middle east naturally i think everyone wants to go to middle east but i'm a big believer of if you can get it right in a country like the uk you can get it right in anywhere the world yeah. because we have the highest standard of everything that's we have regulation. the tightest regulation we have the tightest you know we have the highest standards of education this is why they're used everywhere around the world that's why you know even middle east hire teachers from the uk and pay them handsomely all of that's there but I'm trying to get it right I don't care about International growth People you know Say oh we're expanding To Dubai And, and they make a big deal About that right For me it's like I want to have Every city covered In the UK first Before I even think about Because you can You can be a billionaire In the UK You don't yeah. have to be A, a multi-millionaire um, you, you don't have to be A multi-millionaire By going to Dubai Or Middle East You can do that here In the UK The problem is People don't want to Do the hard work for it And that's one thing I don't shy away from. I'm like, you cannot replace the amount of effort and energy that goes into building. Anyone that tells you that it's a quick fix, it's an easy fix, no problem. If I I knew what I knew today, back then, yes, I would have done it a lot quicker. That, naturally. But there's a, a lesson in business where you could have all the skills, all the knowledge, all the information, everything that you need, or even the resources and the money. To build something, but if you're personally not that person, then what will happen is your business will always drop Mm. because you're not at that level, or you you're not that person with the right characteristics, with the right amount of wisdom, the amount of life experience to be able to run that company how it needs to be run. So I feel like the life difficulties, the experiences that we go through. Are only preparing us for that million-dollar, billion-dollar company, right? Like it—that's all it is. I am going through the difficulties every day and day out. We go through challenges; nothing is ever easy, but we go through those challenges today, and I have them because each step or each preparation, each difficult part of my life, has only prepared me for the next one, and then the, and you have a different set of difficulties. Same in business, right? You start off with this idea of, okay, I want to solve my cash problem first. I want to make money, right? That's the first yeah. thing when you set up a business you think about, right? Then you're like, okay, how do I create more time? Okay, you start creating more time for yourself. Then what do you do next? You know, you have a different problem with people and employees and staff members and contracts and legals. And you know, then you're talking about regulation. So You have a different set of problems at each part of your business. Problems never go away. That Whoever's got that in their head that they'll have a smooth operating company 100% at a time is, is, is deluded, in my opinion. You can never have a perfect running company. That is non-existent. You can have a smooth, efficient, growing business, but you can never have a perfect company. There will always be a problem that needs solving. So as long as we're as long as we're open to that fact As long as we, we acknowledge That there will always be problems in our life We'll be able to deal with them And that's why equally I'm grateful For the position that I'm in Because I've got a roof over my head I've got food at the table I've got the freedom to travel And do what I want to do, right? I've got the basics in life Everything else on this point onwards Is a bonus mm. and, and if I always stay with that mindset what have I got to lose? The thing is, problem, people try and level up. People are like, I need more, I need this, I need, I, I need, I need this, and make it insular. Or they focus so much on trying to, trying to kind of like, trying to give themselves more things that they need to own, and more money goes out, and they need more money for themselves, and they need to spend higher they need to know all the things. Like they're just giving themselves more headache. The more things you own, the more headache you have. That's why people like Bill Gates and people who are the the, the wealthiest in the world. I'll give you I'll give you a story very briefly. I got off in my three-piece suit. I'm going to see a family office in He goes, I'm not I'm not I can't get into the office today. Can you meet me closer to my house? There's a cafe not far from it, like in about half an hour away, right? And he's like, Can you meet me there? I've turned up three-piece suited. I've You know, I'm thinking this guy's going to walk in with a chauffeured car and all the rest of it, right? He walks in. And he's trackies. And he goes, sorry I'm late. I just got off the bus. That day changed everything for me. Because it showed me that for someone that is probably taking him a million pound a month, that's how much work he probably does. He can invest a million pound at any one point in time in any deal. His family wealthy, he's got tons of capital, is coming up with family clothes, nothing fancy, and, and she jumps on a bus to get somewhere. Like, that's when my perspective of like the money in the world changed because I was like, if I can, there's no point in me boasting about the car, the house, the nice watch. It's nice to have those things, right? If I boast about them and show them off, the problem is my investors and going look at me and laugh at me. The people that I work with, the people I represent, the people that I say, okay, you're all about giving but then you're blowing all your money on yourself.
1: Also, boasting about it doesn't add any value to anyone else.
0: It doesn't. It's like, yes, it, I think people have got consumed by social media by saying they have to show off their wealth, their Lamborghinis, they're nice cars, they do all of that. Like I the most wealthy people that I've met are the most humblest people I've ever met. True wealth. I'm not talking about six figures. I'm not talking about seven figures. I'm talking numbers that we've not even seen before at times. And they are people who are just humble. They walk the earth like nobody knows them. Like a good example is the owner of Asia, Tony Fernandez the yeah. QPR football club. I remember meeting him at one point and I was, he was at an event he got off the stage he was walking down towards the train station he had a stain on his blazer and he was walking down to this train station jumping on a train that guy could easily have a helicopter private jet but he owns an airline like you know let's just put that into perspective right and he's just casually walking down to this train station going to jump on a train to go off like who are we to show off who are we to flash our nice cars when the people who really are wealthy are probably like, just, they're just trying to be normal.
1: I think that's what happens, isn't it? It's when you're going into business, a lot of people have this ideology of yes, flash cars and really nice clothes, nice watch and whatever it is. And then when you get to that higher level, it's like you sometimes wouldn't be known by anyone. You just wouldn't be able to walk down the street unnoticed. And um I think i think there's a misconception where people think when you have money you have to show it off you don't
0: yeah and it's like it's not even about being noticed like you could still be noticed and recognized but not for your wealth you could be recognized for the character that you have so like when i like people do stop me in the street in and like i won't know who this person is but they'll say i recognize you from video social media from something right that happens but not because of like, oh, I'm driving this really nice car. Or not because I've stepped out of this glamorous house or I'm eating at the most fanciest restaurant. It's because I'm just being human. It's because I've done something that's impacted their life or said something that's impacted their life or I've provided value in a different way, shape or form. I'd rather have that type of reputation yeah. than have the reputation that is, oh, he's successful because he drives a really nice car. And if that material ever goes, then you're nothing. Yeah. Because all the people around you are going to run away. If you had a
1: 16-year-old Abdul Shakur sitting next to you right now, what are you saying to him?
0: One of the guys in the office. Uh, you might actually know him, Sam Norris. Uh, he's in the office. He's in the office. So we work closely together on a number of projects and we got into business on a few different things. And he said something in the one day. He goes... I think we were having a tough week or a tough few weeks. Everyone was just, something happened and there was just a tough few weeks across the business, across the different companies. Everyone was feeling a bit of a downer. You know, those weeks, everyone everyone just stressed and everyone just like, like, everyone was like, I just want to go home type of thing, right? And he said something interesting. Um, He gave me a quote by Richard Branson. He said, stuck room over showroom. What you meant by that was, sometimes we need to step away from the marketing, the personal brand, or you know all the other things that is about external people, and focus on the work. Focus on rolling up your sleeves and getting on with it. And there are days where people won't hear from you. There are months where people won't hear from you. Because now, uh, it's, it's, sometimes it's better to always just roll up your sleeves and do what you need to do. And that's the same advice I'd give to myself. I don't care about what the people do. People will, if people don't, don't understand it, they don't understand it. If they don't appreciate it, they don't appreciate it. That's, that, that's up to them. Like, not care about what the, your, your reputation from a public brand perspective. Yeah. Focus on building what you need to build. Because it's, it's like maintaining that balance of brand and, 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 and business, right? Yeah. yeah, I was doing well, I was making a bit of money, but it wasn't, I could have made twice, three, four, five times more. Because mm. if I spent more time polling and focusing on the activity that were my skills or my strengths you know, where I could take it.
1: That's where goal setting becomes important because it helps you realign exactly what you need to do. Mm.
0: I, don't, I necessarily don't set goals as often. I focus on what my activities are. Um, I'm a guy that measures his week, his success based on... Activities. So I have a journal, right? Yeah. It's, it's called a Zello. The Zello journal is, is super interesting to me because... It's an unundated diary. It asks you a set of questions. But what I use that journal for isn't a to-do list. It's not a, um, it's not a journal I reflect or I write. This is a completed list. So everything I do in my day, no matter how mundane, no matter how small, I would write that task in the diary. So I went to the gym today. I had this call with this person. I did this. What that does is it looks at my day, at the end of the day, I can reflect on it at the end of the day, what activity have I put in? And at the end of the week, when they when, when ask me the question of, how do you feel like you can improve from the week? You automatically can look at your completed list, not a to-do list, because a to-do list never work, right? If you can look at your completed list, you can then assess where you are and where you need to go. And that's my entire focus right now, is week by week, how can I be better? In not just one area of my life, all areas of my life. Did I go to the gym more, than three or four times this week? Could I go more? How many times did I eat out this week? Maybe I need to cook more. Like, how do we measure our growth and success? Yeah. It's the incremental, the small changes that you make week in, week out that determine your success. The compound of that is 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 is, is massive. But that's what I focus. On. I've started. I've let go of. Achieving goals and achieving visions and all that. It's important to have them, but equally I don't get hung up on them because something could come up, an opportunity could come up that could change my whole business journey.
1: And generally in business, you have to react sometimes as well because if an opportunity comes up through a broker or through someone else, then a lot of your to-do lists will be like, okay, push to the side. This is my main task at the moment because I need to... Mm win this opportunity essentially yeah. or decide if I want to go ahead with this business acquisition maybe for you mm. or you might get a investor client like the one from the family office where you think you know what I need to put my eggs in this basket for now rather than
0: um, yes and no I don't put things <laughs> on a pedestal I don't put people on a pedestal I don't put investors on a pedestal I don't put opportunities I don't put things on a pedestal my diary is my diary a task is in my diary if an appointment is in my diary it's in the diary mm. Nothing will waver me from that even if it's something the only urgent thing that would wave me away from my day-to day diary is if it's something personal family matter something personal that I have to deal with or an errand that I have to run that's the only time I'm ever rescheduling or I'm, or I'm moving things around because that is why I'm doing it. It's not necessarily about the business that that can wait. If an opportunity comes with a family office, okay, cool, I could wait a week. It's not gonna hurt.
1: Yeah. I think uh, think it depends. So obviously it depends how busy your diary is. Yeah. Because obviously if you have meetings with people, it's disrespectful to just cancel over one person. Yeah, but it's
0: like, I work two weeks in hand. So my diary is booked two weeks in oh, hand most okay. of the time yeah. so like most people will not be able to get me in this week with me it'd be the week if you try and squeeze me in during next week and then week after I don't we really work after five usually yeah. so I have a switch off point it's like seven usually that's usually seven is my last thing but usually at five I finish and then I don't work weekends
1: how, how do you switch off? that's the hardest thing for
0: any business owner. Um, I have prioritised other things in my life in the sense that I signed with David Lloyd. Okay. David Lloyd was one of the best things I've memberships I've ever met. Yes, it's expensive. Don't get me wrong, but it's the best membership you'll ever have. Why? I'd rather have that over my office. Why? Because it it the environment isn't just a gym anymore. It's a lifestyle day. You go in there, you can have food. You go in there, you go network. You go in there, you you actually work out. So my switch off has become the gym, badminton. Or or even sit in the jacuzzi Now this is the interesting thing about jacuzzi That most people don't realise So if you go to a gym Yes you can get one of those new pouches and stuff But most of the time you can't take your phone into the jacuzzi Because it's going to go wet So what I do is It's the one time I have an hour to my own brain Sit in the jacuzzi, cold shower, gym, sauna, steam room so if I do all those things in a day I have that, that in the morning it's like a wake up call If I miss my morning work and I go in the evening It's a nice way for me to step away and switch off my thoughts But I've made it a conscious decision as well, it's also about managing your diary yes. At the same time if you have meetings in the diary after six Then you're, then you, and, and if I'm meeting a diary at 9pm for example then that's a problem that you've created yeah, of that can be solved. And so when entrepreneurs tell me they have a problem switching off, it's because they choose to work that long or they choose to sit there on social media and look at other people's content at 11 p.m. at night. I, I'm head to pillow. Like 10 p.m., you put me in bed. And I've hit my head. I'm snuck at, no matter how much stress is in the world. Because I choose not to... Allow those things to consume me Because everything can wait till tomorrow You can't resolve all your problems And you can't build an empire In the two or three hours that you're working in the night Yeah It's not really going to make a difference
1: I think in the beginning of a business journey that helps But I think once you're trying to scale up Then you do need to focus on your mind a lot Because you need You can't sometimes work at 10, 11 at night, mm. and then come 7 a.m. in the morning, 8 a.m. with a clarity of thought. It just yeah. doesn't work.
0: But equally, if, if you look at high performance, right, and I love listening to Brendan Bouchard because uh, he's got a book called High Performance Habits. Now, High Performance Habits is, is an interesting book for me, but in particular, what I've learned is that you need high performers folks on not just their work. High performers are high performers in all areas of their life. And there's, there's something I learned, I think it's called the integral theory, or I can't remember what the name was. Uh, that if two or more areas of your life are affected, it'll have a domino effect on all the other areas of your life. So if things are at home aren't right, and if things at work are shit, and you're healthy shit, it's gonna have a knock on effect on everything else in your
1: life. Yeah.
0: Then how can you actually perform in your business? So now when I look at my life, I look at can I design it in a way where I can perform in every area of my life? And the one thing I learned about Brandon Bashar is in the High Performance Habit, he talks about setting the intention. So do you, when you go home or when you leave the office or when you go and see your parents or your family or your wife or kids, do you set the intention in the room before you walk into the room that you're going to give everything to be present in this very moment with them? That was a powerful thing that I learned. So when I might go see my friends or if I might go see my family, I've made a, I set the intention before I walk in the room. I'm going to give, be present and I'm going to give everything I have to this very moment.
1: How, how do you do that?
0: It's just something you say to yourself. It's just something that you set that intention. It's a bit like when in our religion we pray, we set an intention before we pray. Yeah. If we set the intention to remind ourselves okay i'm about to walk in to see my family see my other house see my wife i'm going to give everything i can to this relationship i'm going to give everything i can to be with this person to give them what they need and at this very moment in time yeah because if i'm distracted it's going to affect my relationships so you have to set that intention. And you know it helps by having like, uh, Ben Rashad mentioned something about having alarms throughout the day, with reminders and stuff that could really work. But I've just learned that with every new task I set, I focus on that task. And then I basically set the intention for every small thing I do in my life. So if it's okay, I set the intention to go pray, I'm gonna go set that intention. When well, I set the intention to do, spend an hour on sales, I'm gonna give everything I can to the hours, prospecting sales. If I set the intention to create content, I'm going to give everything I can. And what it does, it it trains our mind to like, it's like a reset button. No matter how tired we are, we have to reset that.
1: So when you're setting your intentions and you're resetting yourself, do you think that helps you not to get distracted?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely, 100%. Because then you walk in the room and you're not going to pick up your phone. Yeah. You're going to give your all to that person, or to that relationship or that task.
1: Okay, very, very insightful. Just uh, before we finish, we'll have a quick fire round. Yeah, go for it. What's your favourite food?
0: I'm a foodie in general, so I'm, uh, it's going to be a hard one. Just us go calzone, Italian.
1: Favourite holiday destination?
0: Weirdly, I love UK luxury hotels. So any of the UK-based hotels. I don't. I don't. I don't like traveling out too much. Okay. I prefer UK breaks.
1: Where? Where in the UK?
0: Uh so Lake District. Uh, maybe Windsor. Maybe somewhere. Somewhere I can like enjoy an experience without having the headache of traveling. Because I think it's more hassle to travel.
1: Favorite TV show?
0: Ooh. That's a tough one. It's called go Sherlock Holmes. The. Benedict Kamavachiris. Yeah. Favorite book? 48 Laws of Power.
1: Okay, that's on my list to read actually. Game changing. And favorite day of the week? Monday. Perfect, you got
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have to think about that. I disagree with bank holidays. I don't like bank holidays. I
1: say the same. My wife disagrees with me on that part.
0: Yeah, like, bank holidays No. not like I'd rather go to work on a bank holiday. You can go. Exactly. <laughs>
1: Uh, thank you very much uh, for coming on. It's a very it's been, insightful conversation.
0: It's been, a, it's been it's been amazing. Thank you for having me.